Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the September 23rd, 2019 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine. The nation's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and intersex radio show. I'm Chloe Corcoran. And I'm Vosh Bodhi. Tonight, we hear a life-affirming story from Joel Rothschild, author of Signals, an inspiring story of life after life. And we welcome the return of IMRU Radio's audiophile after a nearly two-decade absence as Chris Wilson sets down with singer-songwriter Sean Wiggins. But first, we have an important story about Mark Bingham, a gay hero from 9-11. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to United Flight 93, bound for San Francisco. We are now boarding first Mark Bingham was born to Alice Hoagland on May 22, 1970, and died at 10.03 a.m. on September 11, 2001, when with a few other passengers, he stormed the cockpit of United Flight 93 and fought to prevent members of al-Qaeda from using the plane to kill hundreds, maybe thousands, of additional victims. Instead, the plane crashed into a field near Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Mark was 6 feet 4 and 225 pounds. He was a lifelong rugby star. In college, he was president of his fraternity. And, oh yeah, he was gay. I'm Alice Hoagland. Uh, I'm the mother of Mark Bingham, who was killed on September 11, 2001, on United Flight 93 that crashed in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Mark was incredibly protective of you. One of the phrases repeated over and over in the documentary is, don't tell my mom. Oh, yeah. Well, that's, that's kind of the way it was. I learned a lot about Mark after he was killed. And I learned things like months and years later. His uh, rugby coach in high school, I didn't mean to let the cat out of the bag, Dan said when he told me there wasn't really true that his, uh, his big thigh cut did not really come from a Fijian farmer. It came from a plate glass door that was charged through by Mark on the way to trying to get away from the police down there. And the time that Mark actually knocked over, tackled the Stanford tree, which is the mascot for Stanford University. I didn't hear about that until after Mark was bailed out of jail by my brother Vaughn, Mark's uncle. And uh, it was frightening to behold <laughs> and to learn about it later that the Stanford tree had been taken out by an angry and irate uh, and slightly overwrought cow guy named Mark Bingham. <laughs> As I understand it, the fingerprints that were generated when Mark was arrested for taking out the Stanford tree were the ones that were used to identify him at the crash site. In a crash like that, the human body acts very much like a large, soft envelope, and the things that are left are feet and hands. And I imagine that that's what was left of Mark when they shipped him back in a beautiful casket in the aftermath of 9-11. What's the significance of the film's title, With You? With You is what I used to hear all the time when I stood on the sidelines. It's a common phrase that the rugby players use to orient and to let their fellow teammate who is holding the ball and running with the ball, let them know where you are so that they can throw the ball to you in a lateral pass if they need to. I'm with you, I'm with you. And this is what Mark used to say as he and his buddies were advancing the ball down the field. It's a very common phrase among ruggers. On September 11th, 2001, you were visiting your brother, sound asleep, the phone rang. 6.44 in the morning, the phone rang, and we were all dead asleep out in Saratoga, you know, a continent away from New York. And I thought, oh, I can't get up and answer the phone. I hope somebody does. And I heard it ring again. And I heard Carol Phipps, a family friend, answer it. And I heard her pad past the room where I was sleeping. And I heard her knock on Vaughn and Kathy's door. And I heard Kathy get out of bed and run to the phone. And I heard Kathy say, we love you too, Mark. Let me get your mom. And she saw me standing in the hallway and she said, Alice, come talk to Mark. He's been hijacked. And boy, I was trying hard to get my head around that one. Came and, and uh, listened and I heard Mark's voice. He said, Mom, this is Mark Bingham. And he often said, this is Mark Bingham when he was talking to business associates on the phone. But he didn't usually say that to me. <laughs> and I could tell that he was trying to be very focused and composed and businesslike. So he let that slip out. 
Mom, this is Mark Bingham. I just want to tell you that I love you. I'm on a flight from Newark to San Francisco, and there are three guys on board who have taken over the plane, and they say they have a bomb. You believe me, don't you, Mom? And I said, yes, Mark, I believe you. Who are those guys? And then he was sort of distracted, and I heard the voices of the guys he was making this big plan of revolt with. They were talking. They were already making their plan. And then he came back to me, and he said, I'm calling you from the air phone. And the FBI told me later that he was in 25 DEF calling. It was a big, empty airplane. There were only 40 innocent people on board. This is Steve Pride. I'm talking to Alice Hoagland about her son, Mark Bingham, who was aboard United Airlines Flight 93 on September 11, 2001. Alice, tell me about listening to the tape. The cockpit voice recording was really an eerie and, and ghastly experience in a way, and yet it was very cathartic and important that we heard it. We were invited by the FBI to come to uh, Princeton, New Jersey to listen to it, and, and boy, listen, we did. A bunch of uh, Flight 93 family members sat together with uh, headsets on and an over, overhead screen with translations of the Arabic that was being spoken. And it's a 31-minute tape that runs in a continuous loop. So if it gets to be 31 minutes, then they, and it starts erasing again. So the actual takeover of the airplane by the terrorist, Siad Jara and his three thug buddies, was actually erased by the time, uh, because the plane crashed 31 minutes plus after the time of the takeover. Fortunately, the takeover was actually caught because we think that Leroy Homer, the uh, first officer, keyed his mic open and the words that were spoken by Captain Dahl, get out of here, get out of here, came down and were heard by the fellows ground control in Cleveland. So we do have a pretty good audio record of the takeover right up through the crash. The first 20 minutes or so of the cockpit voice recording are pretty dreary. I can remember hearing such sounds as a flight attendant working just outside the cockpit door. Sometimes you hear phrases coming out of the very automated system there, and I can remember the sound of the autopilot kicking in and out. It was unusual for it to go in and out like that, but I realized that the terrorist pilot, quote-unquote, Ziad Jara, did not know how to turn off the autopilot, so he kept it on. He was fighting with it, and... He had dropped the altitude of the plane so low, it's supposed to be flying 30,000 feet when it's going 600 miles an hour, but he was going 600 miles an hour at about 2,000 feet and then 1,500 feet and then 1,000 feet. People in Pittsburgh remember the sight of a great big 757 out of control, whipping its wings back and forth and flying low over their city, and it crashed a few minutes later, 90 miles south in Shanksville. And what we heard as family members was the sound that was picked up by three microphones, two in the headsets of the pilots, and one mounted on the aft bulkhead. And even though it was technically flawed and Barely audible, it was still just enough to, to turn you white. It, we could hear the sound of people mounting a revolt in the back, and we could hear the lead terrorist asking his buddy, are they fighting? Are they fighting in the back? Hold up the hatchet so they will see it and be afraid. He was thinking that if you hold up the fire axe to the peephole, the people that are outside can see it. Well, that's not the way that peephole worked. It was heartening to hear how frightened those terrorists were when they realized that their plan, their ugly plan, years in the making, was going to fail because three or four or five or six guys in the back decided that they were going to put up some resistance. They took a vote, and they, they grabbed what weapons they could, and they ran forward. And I can just visualize Mark with his long legs running over those seats and his buddies running up the aisles on foot. This was my workplace, and now it was a battleground where my son and his good friends there, his pickup buddies, also athletes, 
a football quarterback, another rugby player, a basketball star from Mark's very alma mater, Los Gatos High School, and Mark Bingham, and whoever else, Alan Bevan, Richard Guadagno, wonderful people on board that flight. All of them athletic. They ran forward, and you could hear the sound of it as the cockpit voice recording picked up. Now we didn't hear Arabic voices so much. Now we heard English spoken in American accent by a bunch of very motivated guys, and it was, get him, get him, in the cockpit, in the cockpit. If we don't get in there, we'll die. And Dina Burnett tells me that that was the sound of, of her husband, Tom. And then the other guys picked it up. It reminded me so much of a rugby match. And the other guys picked it up. I could hear Mark yelling, in the cockpit. And Alan Bevan, perhaps, and Todd, and Jeremy, and Tom, all of them chanting like that, encouraging one another. And you could hear the sounds of blows being struck and you could hear the sound of the two terrorists being dispatched. <laughs> it was a very vigorous time. <laughs> they, they fought as best they could. They used the liquor cart as a battering ram against the cockpit door. And I wish I'd had another minute when Mark called me. Mom, this is Mark Bingham. I just want to tell you I love you. I wish that I'd had another minute before, before we were cut off, and I could have told him, Mark, there is a cockpit key just a few feet away from the cockpit door. You get in there, you turn it. It's easy. It's a flimsy door. It pulls out into the cabin, and you can get in there easily. But they didn't know that. And they, they apparently, according to the FBI, they used a liquor cart from the forward galley as a battering ram against the cockpit door. And you could hear the crockery, the, the glass, and plates pitching back and forth in that galley. And it, it was an onslaught that went on for a good seven, eight, ten minutes. And Ziad Jara finally realized that he was going to have to stop them by doing what he did. And an eyewitness on the ground says that he saw this enormous plane rise straight up and come up over the horizon and tip upside down and plunge straight down into the ground. The FBI tells us that the cockpit probably sheared off. They found some remains in the burning hemlock trees, but when the paramedics and the other emergency equipment arrived as, as best they can a few minutes later out there in Shanksville, way out in a remote area, they couldn't find any evidence of the airplane. They saw uh, pieces of uh, paper floating around, and, and it, it took some digging to find the remains of the airplane. It had buried itself so thoroughly and so fast in the loamy soil out there in southwest Pennsylvania that there was nothing left of it. They had to dig it out, and they found the cockpit voice recorder and the, and the flight data recorder. And I was so gratified on the late afternoon of September 11th to, to get verification from the FBI of what I'd been telling people, that it was a studly group of passengers that got together and mounted a revolt. It was not a coincidence or an accident that the plane came down short of the terrorist target of the Capitol Dome in Washington. Watching the home movies of Mark in the documentary, I it, it's pretty clear that he would have been impervious to my gaydar. So when he was younger, did you ever have any suspicions about his sexuality? I don't have gaydar, but Mark used that expression a lot. But I was uh, dumbfounded when he came out to me on August 27, 1991. I was just astounded. I did not receive the news very well. Mark really set me on a spiritual journey. And he has taught me how to live my life. And he has taught me how important it is to be open to people who are not like me and to realize that there is much love and redemption to be, to be earned. And I need to ask the forgiveness of the gay community for being you know, just slightly uh, um, unaware and uh, ungracious at first. Fortunately, Mark had the grace to be patient with me, and I'm so grateful that he had enough love for both of us for a while. And I did come around, and I began to realize, hey, I need to revise my attitudes, and I need to speak out against this, the stereotyping that the gay community is receiving. And Mark tells me that there are not enough gay heroes and people to look up to as role models. 
And that needs to change. And as Mahatma Gandhi said, be the change. And, and that's what I want to do. I want to be the change. And I'm in such good company now. There are so many people who are speaking up and coming to the fore and being good spokespersons for the LGBT community. I think that everyone, everyone should be fully enfranchised with the mainstream and should be proud of their sexuality and marry whom they love. This has been a conversation with Mark Bingham's mom, Alice Hoagland. The documentary is called With You. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Even though he could not marry Or teach your children in our schools Because who he wants to love At the Flight 93 National Memorial in Pennsylvania, Mark Bingham's name is located on one of the 48-foot-tall panels of polished, three-inch-thick granite that comprises the memorial's wall of names. The 2013 feature-length documentary, With You, can also be found under the title, The Rugby Player. Don't go away. We'll be right back with more IMRU Radio. One magazine, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. In the early 1950s, Los Angeles became the center of a burgeoning gay community. On October 15, 1952, two years after Harry Hay co-founded the Mattachine Society, a discussion group, including a number of members, started the first gay publication with a national circulation, One Magazine. Their purpose was to establish a magazine dealing primarily with homosexuality from the scientific, historical, and critical point of view. The first issue was published in January 1953 and was sold openly on the streets of Los Angeles. It sported a sophisticated look with bold graphics done by professional typesetters and designers. Most subscribers paid extra to have it delivered in an unmarked wrapper. But the October 1954 edition caught the eye of the LA postmaster who seized it and refused to mail it. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia. It's read by volunteers like me. I'm Dan Roberts. Hello, this is the actor Michael Emerson. It's not easy being one of the others, so if time travel or moving the island isn't an option and you're feeling sort of lost, try listening to IMRU. Welcome back. I'm Chloe Corcoran. And I'm Vosh Bodhi. On June 1st, 1994, Joel Rothschild walked into the apartment of his close friend Albert Fletus and found him dead from suicide. Both men were HIV positive and had seen many of their friends' lives ended by AIDS. He chronicled this story in the book Signals, A Psychic Awakening, which tells the moving story about his reaction to Albert's death and the subtle and not-so-subtle signals that he began receiving shortly afterwards. Steve Pride sat down with Joel and combined the conversation with the music of his own friend and AIDS survivor, Steve Shacklin. Benjamin Franklin once said that best friends are one soul and two bodies. In his debut book, Signals, Joel Rothschild shares a story of facing death and instead losing his best friend, Albert. It's not that I'm not grateful, I didn't want to die. But when I met the Reaper just before he passed me by, he fixed me a martini, then he told me pretty lies, then ran away. In May of 1994, I was on chemotherapy for chaos on my lungs. It was 90 pounds. I had gone through seven opportunistic infections, five bouts of pneumocystis pneumonia, I had 32 T-cells, and my doctor said, you know, you're able to travel now, and you're walking around, but we don't know how long you're going to be like this. Go home and say goodbye to your family. Go home and say goodbye to your friends. Albert was the love of my life, my best friend, my light, my everything, and I thought, you know, I want to be with Albert at the end. But there's people I want to make peace with. I had a very dear friend in Atlanta I want to say goodbye to. I want to say goodbye to my family. So I decided I would go back. And I made arrangements with Albert that I would come back on June 4th, 1994. And the whole time I was traveling, I took a few weeks to see family and friends. I had this nagging thought, I need to get back to L.A. Something's wrong in L.A. All of my friends at that time were sick. Everyone had AIDS. My whole core group of friends were extremely sick. Albert was HIV positive. 
but in perfect health. And we had all decided at that time, it was pre-protease, there wasn't a window of opportunity for hope. AIDS was everywhere. There's hope now. It's a different saga. At that time, we were inundated with sadness every day. Do you remember those days when you couldn't go to the grocery store without seeing a bag boy that was dying? We had all talked about suicide. We had gone to Mexico and got the suicide drugs, and we all read Final Exit and decided that if one of our friends would take their own life, we would support them. And as many of the close friends as possible would be there with that person, which was not uncommon. It's like unheard of today, but this is what we did. Albert and I had a commitment that we'd spend the last 24 hours together, and I thought that I would be the person that was committing suicide. I thought I would come back, probably have a couple good weeks, and then I would take my own life. We had a side agreement that whoever died first would contact the other one if there was any hope or possibility to signal each other. I was a card-carrying member of the National Atheist Association, the ultimate skeptic. Why did I go along with the agreement? Was because he was Catholic, he was incredibly spiritual, and I was patronizing him. And I was also thinking, this is the kindest person I've ever known in my life. If there is a God, he's certainly someone that earned a favor from God and that God would allow me to flick a little light in his room. So I went along with the pack, taking it very seriously. I'd always been the big brother, the adult, and I thought, I'm the next one to die. I'm going to try to give him hope if there's a possibility. I came home June 1st, 1994, straight from the airport to his house, opened the door, and I find his corpse. He's dead. In that moment, I went from functioning to completely being a wreck. I, I was actually hitting his dead body. I was bouncing from crying and vomiting to being angry that he did it. And there was no suicide note at the scene. I needed it desperately in that moment. Now, being an anal retentive queen, he did calligraphy. So he did it on engraved stationery, calligraphied, mailed it to arrive on June 4th. So it killed himself thinking I'm not going to come home and not find him. Find his dead body, need the note then. Police are there, the sheriff's there, coroner's there. I needed that note more than anything that I ever needed in my life. I needed it to know that he still loved me, that he cared about me, that I was in his final thoughts, that our relationship was real. Need the note, clearly hear his voice. Never thought about it, didn't think about it. Clearly hear his voice say, look in the trash behind the house next door and you'll find the suicide note. It's like an insane person. I hop the wall, go behind the house next door, find the rough draft to the suicide note. The day before was trash day and he had put it out on trash day and then it got wheeled back. That note got me home and opened the door to what became the book, Signals. And that contact with Albert that night is why you can hear my voice today. It's the reason why I'm alive. The core message from Albert in all of this was that every moment of life matters. Perhaps someday for several hours You'll fill some church with lots of flowers And display some saintly shot of me somewhere in the hall Stick a tray of nachos up against the wall I bet my mom will tell a story endowing me with lots of glory and punish you by making you listen to my song or torture you by forcing you to have to sing along then I'll find my way back to the seat in the back and I'll be a good boy till it's over then I'll get to do something that you cannot do A day when you feel lost or hurt, go to the kitchen and get some dessert, then sit at the table and eat. Just remember, please remember to save me a seat. Please remember.
In Signals, Joel writes of a spiritual awakening and a departed friend who not only returned to him that same night, but continues to come to him again and again with specific messages of hope for both friends and strangers. I knew it was real. I just had this internal debate about its purpose or whether it was worthy or whether I would share it with anyone. A simple faith, a quiet faith, not complicated, something you feel, and that's what makes it great. It's just a simple faith. First off, I really didn't want to come out about being gay and having AIDS to the whole world and pulling my pants down and telling everything. You know, basically I bared my soul in the book, my family, everything. I didn't, you know, I didn't want to do that. But friends that went through the things with me that are chronicled in Signals kept saying, this is bigger than you and you need to share it. In case you just tuned in, you're listening to This Way Out. Today with the author of Signals, Joel Rothschild, and featuring the music of Steve Shacklin. The American Indians believe that the hummingbird carries the soul of the departed, and hummingbirds play a significant role in Joel's story. Three times I was consoling someone else, and a hummingbird landed on me. Sounds like an oddity. Not such a big deal. So as I'm sharing these events with friends, and the last friend that came to mind with the hummingbird story is a woman named Rita Wehner, who's in her 80s, husband, it's not in the book, wrote all the music for Billie Holiday. Brilliant woman, had polio, she was crippled most of her life, or disabled most of her life, and this gregarious and wonderful woman, but an atheist as well. And very dear friend, she's my surrogate grandmother. And as I'm telling her these stories over the course of a year and a half, she's saying, I wish I could believe them. I'd love to believe that I'm going to see my father again and my mother or my husband. But Joel, I just can't believe these stories. I just don't believe them. I love you and I believe that you believe them, but I don't believe them. We're on the 10th floor of a high rise on Doheny. Hummingbird flies in the window through sliding glass doors, lands on me, put my little finger out, hops on my finger, passed it to her. She looks at me and she says, I believe you, I have it all, write the book. That was the last experience, and then I wrote the book. Joel Rothschild was diagnosed with AIDS in 1986, but self-pity has never been his style. I had diarrhea from chemotherapy, and in the middle of the evening, well, for me, it was like 10 o'clock at night, I had diarrhea on me, and I was so mad, and I kept saying, why me? I'm so frustrated. So I got myself showered, and I went to get a bite to eat. I'm at a little restaurant towards closing time, and a guy comes in in a wheelchair. And I thought, oh, at least I could get up and get a shower. And as I'm looking at his wheelchair, he's got a gay flag tied to it, and he's got a gay bumper sticker, and he's got an Amnesty International sticker on it. And I had a copy of my book, and I thought, I'm going to sign to a hero and give it to him. But he was so paralyzed, he had only movement in his face where he could blink in one eye, one finger could move, and he could talk. And he had a nurse spoon-feeding him. And I walked up to him, and I go to give him my book. I had it open to a page, and he says, Joel, how are you? I haven't seen you in 10, 12 years. I didn't recognize him. And he says, you look fantastic. And when you haven't seen someone with AIDS for 10 years, you think they might be dead. Still don't recognize him. I told him I had written this book, and life was going good. Hand him the book. He says, oh, you wrote to a hero. You must know my story. Right as he said that, I recognize him. He was this beautiful, handsome man that I had remembered, this athletic guy and gregarious, wonderful person. I started to cry. Here I am with someone in a wheelchair that's totally disabled, more than quadriplegic, has no movement in his fingers. He says, you, you must have heard my story. You wrote to a hero. And I said, no, I don't. I, and I'm starting to cry. He said, don't cry for me. I have the greatest life. He said, let me tell you my story. After my lover died, I started riding in the California AIDS rides. And I was on Nichols Canyon practicing for one of the AIDS rides, and I got hit by a car, and they broke my neck. They took me to Cedars, and I was flat on my back in depression for weeks on end, crying. And then they brought in a kid that was in Northridge High or one of the high schools, and he broke his back playing football. And every day and every morning, he would scream at the nurse, kill me, give me some morphine, kill me. I don't want to live like this. I don't want to be a cripple my whole life. Kill me. He said, I had an epiphany. I decided where I would find my meaning in my life. 
I went back to UCLA. I got my PhD in therapy, and I became a therapist, and I'm on board at Cedars for people that have had life-altering injuries. I thought, oh my God, this guy went through so much. And I thought, that's really amazing. And then I talked to another friend of mine who got his PhD, said, I remember him in the program. And let me tell you how hard it was for him to get his PhD. And it never crossed my mind. He had no movement. He couldn't write. He couldn't type. How did he get it? He wore glasses that had a laser beam that pointed at a specially adapted screen one letter at a time, and he blinked one letter at a time to be able to type to get his PhD. And they didn't give him any leniency in the program. He still had to compete like every other PhD candidate to get it. So not only did he have to overcome the obstacle once, but he had to overcome it every moment of his life. I thought, that's someone who rose to the occasion. I don't know why I'm telling you that story now, but I think it has some purpose and some meaning. And so as much as I've been through, there's always someone who's been through more and maybe even risen a lot higher. So what is the lesson that forms the core of Joel Rothschild's philosophy? The shimmering core for me is that every moment of life matters and that even our suffering has purpose. It may not feel that way. And along those lines that everything passes and that there is truly a ripple effect to the good deeds that we do and that we're not alone and that we're all in this together and that we're all connected and we're all a part of something bigger um, and that we have a responsibility to each other and a responsibility to act beyond our primal instincts and to use our higher selves and our higher consciousness and to be kinder and better people. Earlier this year, Joel Rothschild was honored with the Ribbon of Hope Award at the Television Academy of Arts and Sciences for giving back to the community through his tireless volunteer work. Whether one accepts the events he shares as signals from a dead friend or rejects them as random coincidences, Signals is an inspiring story of one man's journey and inner transformation. The music in this report was performed by songwriter and AIDS survivor Steve Shacklin. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Yeah.
don't go away. We'll be right back with Chris Wilson, Sean Wiggins, and the return of Audiophile. Game Magazine Seized by Postmaster, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. The gay periodical One Magazine, featuring monthly scholarly and historical articles, was considered informative and provocative in the 1950s. But in October 1954, the Los Angeles Postmaster seized and refused to deliver all copies of One Magazine on the grounds that it was obscene, lewd, lascivious, and filthy. A lengthy court battle followed, led by the young lawyer Eric Julber, who took the case pro bono. It was up to Julber alone to convince the court that One Magazine was educational and not pornographic. The case of One Incorporated versus Olson went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court and was the court's first case dealing with homosexuality. On January 13, 1958, the Supreme Court, in a one-sentence decision, stated that discussion of homosexuality was not obscene, thus overturning previous rulings of two lower courts. One magazine continued publication until 1967. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia. It's read by volunteers like me. I'm Dan Roberts. I'm on the right track, baby, I was born this way. <laughs> born in Manhattan, living in L.A., and touring everywhere in between, Sean Wiggins has over 100 songs in her catalog and well over 10,000 CDs independently sold. Tonight, she sits down with legendary music reporter Chris Wilson as we welcome Just back the return of the IMRU Radio audio but you better Studio guest is Sean Wiggins. Welcome, Sean. Thank you for having me. Oh, you are a very, very prolific writer, singer, all of that. When did you get started performing? I don't like to even admit that anymore. I say from the womb. <laughs> <laughs> but I've been doing it a long time. So since high school, I've been playing professionally. Wow, since high school. Yeah. What, what instrument did you start with? Piano. And I didn't ever take a lesson. I would just lock myself in a room and play piano without knowing what I was doing. But had great fun just creating sound. No piano lessons, no classical, this, that, and the other. You just picked up the piano? Yeah. Wow. I mean, later I took a ton of lessons of various kinds, you know, music and voice lessons. But um, yeah, no, I just, I just decided that I wanted to play piano. 
And you started out in New York. Tell us about that. I wanted to be an actress, really. So I was going to lots of auditions, but I didn't know anything. So I was about 18. I would show it up to an audition with a sheet of music like Ain't Misbehavin'. Oh, my. <laughs> Some of you might not even know what that is. It's a Fats Waller tune. And I would have a headshot and no resume because I didn't have any experience. And I, I auditioned, and it was, it was a learning experience. And I did cabaret in the city, I, I, meaning I, I sang in little clubs and around New York City. So you stuck with the music then? I did. I must say, the first time I ever saw you, and we didn't meet at that time, was in Del Shore's Sorted Lives. Oh, wow, really? Yeah, really. You didn't know that, did you? No, no. Well, I did. I went to see the play. I'm a big fan of Del Shore's. And there you were. And then I found out that you'd actually toured that show yeah, with him. Yeah, that was a blast. Oh, I bet it was. Slightly frightening at times. Yeah? Now there were really big stages and big venues in uh, Nashville and Florida. And, uh, and it was, yeah, it was, it was crazy. Tell us uh, one of the best stories from the road on that trip. The best one is when I was in Dallas and I started off the show with the theme song. So they told me I was going to be up in one of those balustrade, that's the only word I can think, like a balcony seat mm -hmm. up on the second level. And that I needed to lean over the back of it, playing guitar and singing in the dark. Oh. <laughs> it was just a little terrifying. So that was, for me, kind of a moment. Hey, it was theater, right? Hey, yeah. I could have died right there. It would have been exciting. <laughs> <laughs> would have made the papers. Right. You know, they say that all publicity is good publicity, right? Yeah, that would have been a big moment. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> You have won a ton of awards. You've had music placed in I don't know how many podcasts, film, television, etc. You are a very hardworking musician, aren't you? Yeah, it's a seven days a week proposition. You're doing all that as an independent musician, right? Yeah, so I play over 220 shows a year. And last month I played 21 shows in four states. So... Any of my free time is spent promoting the shows or trying to get my music into film, TV, or schmoozing. So that isn't free time. <laughs> there is no free time. You're constantly working at it. You are a working musician, working overtime, sounds like. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely overtime. Now, what states did you tour in? I just had a mini tour, so that's what added in some states. But I, I have a regular yearly visit to the Midwest. I have a really good following there and just love the people there. So I was in Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, and then all over Southern California in August. And you, as a human being, you're out. And that's not been any impediment at all to your work? Or am I wrong about that? Yeah, I mean, I guess I, I, I mean, honestly, sometimes I think about it in certain places that I am. But my belief is that if I set a good example of I'm an amazing performer and an amazing singer and songwriter, which I am all of those. <laughs> Just look, that's me laughing at myself. That if you're setting a good example and being a good human, then people should accept you. Our listeners would like to hear another one of your wonderful songs. So we're going to give them a taste of one called Don't Wake Me.
I'm Chris Wilson, and we have been listening to Sean Wiggins here on IMRU. Tell me a little bit about that one. I understand that's one of your favorites. It's one of my favorites because it's very different from what I've been doing recently. So I just released a new CD, and it's called Exposed. And it is a different instrumentation from my last CDs. My last CDs were a little more rootsy, straight-ahead, bass guitar, drums, vocal. This one I wrote on piano, and I don't do that that often. I usually write on guitar. And I wanted to write a big-sounding pop like number and uh, it just started to happen and I had input I went to Sweden last year and believe it or not that whole experience sort of inspired me and because um, I, I, I actually met Benny from ABBA and like just trying to you know there's so much instrumentation in that music and I thought I want to do something big and uh I think if you hear this, you know, I hopefully other people agree, it's a pretty big sounding song. It's got a lot going on. Yeah, that's one of the things that I like about it as well. Um, but I've also had the privilege of seeing you perform live. And in my opinion, there's nothing that this is not an unbiased interview. In my opinion, <laughs> there is nothing like seeing you live. And you're all over Southern California when you're not touring in the Midwest once a year. Tell, tell our listeners about some of the places where you perform locally. Uh, I have regular places in Santa Barbara. Cold Spring Tavern is a really cool spot if people want to get away. It's uh, been on the Travel Channel a bunch of times. It's an old stagecoach stop from the 1800s. I play in Ventura regularly, um, really all over the place. I play so many that, honestly, I only know what's happening in the next two days. So uh, on my website, I have all the dates listed. But it, it goes from San Diego to Sacramento, I would say, is is my area. Yeah, and I looked on your your website or your Facebook page, because you have both, um, and I saw that you had 21 shows in the month of August, and that was also including that tour in the Midwest. <laughs> yeah. So I understand why you can't necessarily keep track of them all. It's a, it's a little difficult. And right now, I, I seriously just hit a wall in September. I am not superhuman. I, this, that was a little tiring. <laughs> so what keeps you going? A love of music. I honestly, anytime I get on stage, I can be driving to the gig and thinking, I am so tired. I didn't sleep last night. I, this, this is the last thing I want to do. And I get on stage and I start to sing and it's my happy place. I just, I couldn't think of doing anything else. I don't want to do anything else. It's, it, it's, it keeps me going, just the act of singing. Well, I'm so appreciative of you sharing your time with us and your music with us. Where can people find out more about you and where you're playing? Because it'll be easy to find a place, but where do they go to find it? Well, you go to seanwiggins.com, which is S-E-A-N, Wiggins, W-I-G-G-I-N-S. And uh, I've got all my dates there. And on Facebook, you can find me at Sean Wiggins or Sean Wiggins and Lone Goat. Uh, I'm on Spotify iTunes. Basically, just type me in somewhere and you'll find me. Thank you so much for being with us. And the latest CD is called Exposed, the latest of many, many CDs. And thank you so much for being with us, Sean. And we're going to just play one more of your songs that I genuinely love. And that song would be called The Gamble. Thanks. Yesterday's How life never treated you too care. 
Okay, that's it for tonight. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns, and our coordinating producer and director of distribution, and most importantly, Sparkle, Vash Bodhi. Find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. If you're a web designer, social media expert, or just interested in LGBTQI community affairs and would like to volunteer with IMRU, email volunteer at imruradio.org. A little reminder, you can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. You can also listen to our podcast where we present longer interviews and content too bodacious to broadcast. And if you want to see us, be sure to check out our promos on IMRU Radio Podcast on YouTube. Good night.